It's interesting. I find that the text and the pictures for me, when, the, when, when we're doing the best work, they are working together almost musically, where the, where the words fail to convey, the pictures pick it up and vice versa. When we look at how these simple characters, which are just really composed of a few lines, are able to move us in such a powerful way, you know, I think that that speaks a lot about the, the power and the impact that comics have to tell stories both short and simple or beautiful and profound. That's Steve Ellis and David Gallagher. They're co-creators of the graphic novel series High Moon. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. When High Moon came out in 2007, it created a sensation, winning multiple awards, including the Harvey Award for Best Online Series. And why not? It's like a mashup of Sergio Leone and George Romero. The brainchild of visual artist Steve Ellis and writer David Gallagher, High Moon tells the story of the bounty hunter in the late 19th century town of Blessed, Texas. But this is the Wild West with a supernatural twist. Blessed is a town plagued by werewolves, and our bounty hunter himself has haunting secrets to conceal. Fast forward 10 years, and Paper Cuts is reissuing High Moon. Volume 1, Bullet Holes and Bite Marks, has just come out, with Volumes 2 and 3 to follow. And Paper Cuts has done it in style, remastering the art and presenting High Moon in both hardcover and paperback simultaneously, giving the reader, according to David Gallagher, the full cinematic experience. Steve Ellis and David Gallagher have been collaborators for 10 years. Among the comics they've co-created are The Only Living Boy and Box 13, as well as bringing the High Moon series to an end with new material in Volume 3. Comic book fans have been thrilled by this unlikely combination of werewolves and the West. It certainly piqued my interest. Who thinks of these things? How do you come up with that idea? Was that you, David, or did you talk about it together? How did, how did you hatch this? <laughs> So I, I came up with the initial concept of the series. And uh, and this is David speaking. Yeah, this is yeah. this is David speaking. I came up with the initial concept for the series back in 2004. You know, I had grown up in an old Civil War town, and I was always struck by the idea of, of this idea of maybe doing a, like a werewolf, vampire, Civil War story, where like the North would be vampires and the South would be, you know, werewolves and... I, I, you know, it's just sort of those ideas you have, like, driving to work. But as I got to thinking about the series more and more and that idea more and more, I, I was really struck with some of the ideas that Steve had mentioned previously, which, which are those ideas of sav savagery versus civilization. And, you know, I had this vision of this awesome, like, okay corral kind of gunfight where at midnight— you know, people would start firing and one of the people would end up being a werewolf. And I thought, oh, wow, that's so cool. And so <laughs> the idea of High Moon came up just toying around with ideas. But as I really got into thinking about the mythology of the werewolf, I also thought about real-life historical events that might drive werewolves to be really interested in the Old West. So I looked up, like, the, the secret history of Jim Bowie's silver mines and old boom towns and... I took real history and used it as an opportunity to tell a compelling story about werewolves, human savagery, and civilization. Steve, this was so so successful. It was an award-winning 
comic book. Ten years later, it's being re-released in this gorgeous form. Why do you think it resonated the way it did? Well, it's a good question. I think for me, the the idea of uh, werewolves and and the old west, I guess, is immediately when I heard that and David threw that at me, it immediately resonated with me, just because I like monsters and stuff like that. But also because the werewolf is the idea of the inner beast coming out uncontrollably, you know, once a month or whenever, however the the myth you're following works. And that myth resonates, I think, historically because of the idea of that inner conflict with the civilizing aspects of, you know, humanity. It's very, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, the beast within. And I think the Old West is also a conflict between the civilizing aspects of the you know, late 1890s, the savage version of the gunslingers that were there after the Civil War. So you have this conflict between kind of a beast and a civilizing aspect. And I think those two concepts smashing into each other of civilization and the inner monster is a, a longstanding conflict that I, I think we all deal with that psychologically <laughs> a little bit. And so when you combine them together in a graphic novel, it just explodes. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think so, yeah. Absolutely. Now, was this the first collaboration between you two? Yeah, actually, um, at New York Comic Con in 2007, we started talking about this. And uh, so it was pretty soon after meeting there uh, and kind of reigniting a friendship, we started to talk about the project. And then very soon after, we were in with the DC Comics group, you know, where they were publishing the book. So it was within a, I guess within a few months of just kind of getting yeah, back like together. Yeah, like seven months. In February, yeah. we had, uh, in February, Steve and I had started talking, and then we had started working on High Moon in July of 2007, and then it debuted October 30th of that year. The process of you two working together. David, you're the author. Steve, you draw and ink. How does it how does mm-hmm. it work? Do image and text come together at the same time? Does the image follow the text? How does how does this go? So usually what will happen is Steve and I will one of us will come up with an idea. So it'll be something. And we'll call the other on the phone. Hey, I got this crazy idea. How about we do this or we do that? And then the other person's like, oh, yeah, yeah, what about adding this or this or this or that? Or did you think about adding flying monsters with three eyes as opposed to four eyes or whatever? And then when we're done, that all that brainstormed morass of information is funneled into an outline, which I usually type. I send that to Steve for review. He'll kick in a few notes, and then we'll, we'll break out into, like, groups. So we'll do character design. Steve will do some character designs. I'll take Steve notes and make a, a pitch or a, a more fully fleshed outline. And then we just collaborate every step of the way to make sure that it, it's working properly. So what do you think of this design? Or what do you think of this story idea? Or you know, So there's a lot of yeah. collaboration back and forth. Yeah, not, not to interrupt, but... What we end up doing is uh, David will often have, you know, an outline of of a page uh, or a scene. And uh, then together we'll kind of back and forth. I'll be sketching. He'll be writing, especially if we're in the same room together. It works out great. We'll be changing the story or at least altering the story as we go, kind of finessing the storyboards for each page. And then once we kind of get the storyboards written out and David is concurrently working on text for the panels, dialogue and things like that. Then we kind of go into our own corners and um, I do finished artwork. I take it to finished pencil and then ink and then color. 
while uh, David is kind of finessing the script, I get him the pages, and sometimes the script changes a little bit. Sometimes the artwork has to change a little bit to fit the final idea, and then we move on to the next page. It was very convenient when Steve lived like two blocks from my house. <laughs> uh, so I had to move far yeah, away. now he lives far away. And now he's in Ithaca. That's right. Yeah, so my he, fault. Yeah, so he, <laughs> we used to live two blocks away from one another, and so it made it very easy. So like every day or every other day, I'd, I'd come over to his studio and we'd collaborate. So it, it's a little different now with Steve living in Ithaca, but we use things like Skype and Dropbox and Slack and other programs to sort of help ease the collaboration along. And it's been great. I mean, we've worked on High Moon and numerous other projects since then, and it, it's just been great. And going back and doing new High Moon stories is, is a lot of fun because it's like learning to ride a bike. We haven't forgotten. So explain to all of us what's going on with this reissue, because you're writing new High Moon stories as well. Right. Yeah. The first two volumes are going to be previously seen material, not necessarily previously printed material. And then the third volume is going to wrap up the entire series. When we did it for DC, originally the imprint that Hyman was a part of ended. So because of that, the story had to stop for a while. So basically, we're starting off where we left off with the story with the next couple of uh, Ah. uh, story arcs. I see. So you didn't ne- you didn't necessarily come to an organic conclusion. It was sort of forced on you, and now you get to pick it up again. Yeah, we were expecting to do the whole thing. But in a way, uh, it's great because we're going to be able to do it in this much more beautiful format. First, why do you think there's been such an explosion in comics? I'd say within the past two decades— It has moved from being on the fringes of publishing to really occupying not just a center space, but a place where there's just so much innovative work happening. This is going to sound weird, but the answer to that question is Pokemon. Pokemon? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to explain. Okay. So in the, the late 90s, I was interning at Marvel Comics, and the comic industry wasn't in a really, really profound place right I mean it was in a profound place but it's profoundly bad um, so the industry <laughs> yes. is profoundly bad um, and so you had a lot of leaders thought leaders in the working at Marvel and DC and other companies predicting the death of the American comics market within a year and a half and this is in 98 so they didn't think it, it was going to live the industry as a whole in America was going to live beyond the year 2000 so in 1999 Pokemon broke big and all this Pokemon manga flooded the book market, and it became so wildly popular that other comic companies learned how to follow suit, developing more and more of their titles for the bookstore markets and for the libraries and schools. And so what you had happen was these kids were younger and younger and younger, and they were getting access to more and more stories that weren't just confined to comic book shops. And so in any given day, you could walk into a Barnes & Noble in the early 2000s and see kids littered all over the floor just with manga in their hands, just reading on the floor, reading in the graphic novel section of Barnes & Noble. And manga is um, Japanese comic books as well as a style of comic books. Yeah. Right. In that time, you also saw uh, the rise in superhero movies. And so exposure to superhero-related and comic-related content also 
happened to rise. So people became more aware of things like the Avengers and Spider-Man and the X-Men. And so that created gates of entry into allowing kids to find and access more material, whether it was cartoons or comics or accessories, and create better brand awareness of these characters and these uh, icons. What do you think, Steve? Well, you know, it's funny. I think there's a lot of what David said is right. I think also from the standpoint of just of the Hollywood aspect of it, I think a lot of the people who are deciding on ideas for films and TV shows for the last 20 years have really used comics as a a springboard for getting ideas and in a way a testing ground for new projects, new ideas, new things like The Walking Dead came right, you know, came out of comic. It's not just relegated to superheroes. So it's the actual medium of comics itself. You can see it. You can read it pretty easily. The other side of it, too, I think, is from the educational standpoint, more and more librarians, I think, and teachers as well, in the late 90s and early 2000s started saying comics were a really great way to get kids who had trouble or were resistant to reading into reading. So, you know, in the early 90s, I was brought in on a project for Scholastic Books at one point to do a bunch of classics illustrated books to try to get reluctant readers interested in reading again using comic books as a bridge. And so I think a lot of libraries and bookstores opened that door for that reason. And I think you had teachers and schools and librarians all saying that this is a great material for reluctant readers. So they stopped saying to kids, don't read comic books, they're garbage. They started saying, hey, actually, comic books can be pretty good. So I think that also changed the perception of what a comic book or a graphic novel could be. Yes, because it isn't just for kids also. I mean, what happened, I think, in the past couple of decades is it's adults now read graphic novels, and there's no sense of them being dumbed down for adults. It's it's simply another very, very vital form of communication. When the Watchmen movie trailer debuted a few years ago, I want to say that was 2009, 2010, Um, When that Watchmen movie trailer debuted, DC Comics sold, because of that trailer, a million copies of Watchmen. And Mm. so the the desire to go back and, and just be exposed to great stories, I think, is definitely prevalent. And I think people just want these really great, explosive, powerful, dramatic stories, whether it's Persepolis or Mouse or the X-Men, or Watchmen. I think that there's a real desire to be lost in that story. Yeah. And I think the idea of mixing text and image uh, is a powerful medium for any story. And we do it in our advertising, and we've done it throughout history. And for a while, I think, comics had a bad rap because of uh, the 1950s, basically in the 50s, uh, that were trying to kind of condemn comics for being a problem for children and for other people and and, and the, the dumbing down of comics for a long time. And I think as a medium, it's been slowly kind of dragging itself out of the muck and artists have been using it as a medium to try saying more important things more and exactly. more as time goes on. Right. Scott McCloud has a, who wrote Understanding Comics, has a really great piece about this in his book where he talks about how by creating a, a more simplified form, we're, be, we're 
better able to identify with the characters that are in the stories. We look at things like Calvin and Hobbes, which are immensely popular, or the Peanuts, which were immensely popular. And we look at how these simple characters, which are just really composed of a few lines, are able to move us in such a powerful way. You know, I think that that speaks a lot about the the power and the impact that comics have to tell stories both short and simple or beautiful and profound. And and I think that 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 ultimately is why I love working in the medium. Well, yeah. And now now to really put you on the spot, I wonder with both of you, what comics enable you to do that you might not be able to do in another medium? David, in your case, for example, if you were just using text. That's a good question. So if I were just using text, I think ultimately is I love thinking visually. And we live in such a visual world. I mean, we're, we're always looking at our phones. We're looking at TV. We're looking at movies. We're surrounded by all these great visual, powerful images. And I think that text is important, and I think it pairs well with images. But I think ultimately the thing you lose with text is you aren't always able to convey something so simply. You know, we say a picture says this, it's a thousand words. I think what you're able to do uh, with comics is sort of convey very simply the line, the shape, the the tone, the shadow, the light, the color, and the image of, of something in a way that you're not always able to convey in text. And what about for you, Steve? Tell me how the text serves you in a way that perhaps just pictures don't. Well, you know, it's interesting. I find that the text and the pictures for me, when the when when we're doing the best work, they are working together almost musically, where the where the words fail to convey, the pictures pick it up and vice versa. So, you know, as the story is being told, and you know, being a visual artist, I've done you know, I've done gallery work, I've done illustration, and I've done comics, and what I've found is that I prefer using the juxtaposition of multiple images to tell a story as opposed to a single image. I feel like I can get a longer, bigger, more more robust story out of it. And so then using text with it allows for a balance. There's only so much the image can tell, and the text just fills in that, you know, ever so slightly that additional part, and then vice versa, where where the text is great as dialogue sometimes or the visuals can convey an emotion, a sensibility, a texture, a color, a mood that would, like David said, take a thousand words to describe, but it's an immediate visceral reaction to a picture that is different than reading, say, a paragraph of text. Let me start with Steve. How did you get in the comic biz? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I went to I went to uh, college for uh, fine art and illustration, but I think it was the second day of actually going to school. I met this guy named Matt, who was kind of a, a crazy man. And uh, he's like, you have to join our comics group. And I was like, uh, okay. And I'd read comics before and was kind of you know interested, but I wasn't really that involved in it. But then from there, I met some pretty amazing people who have all gone on to professional work since in our little comics group. Um, and I started doing a comics strip for a daily newspaper for uh, the Daily Orange up at Syracuse. And basically, it was a great way to kind of practice writing, telling stories, and kind of uh, build a language of how I create stories with pictures. And then when I got out of school, I, I had immediately thought, I'm going to be doing illustration because the, or, or gallery work because that's what I had gone to school for. But I had spent all this time developing this language, this visual language of my own on these strips 
So my friends were like, oh, Steve, you should send your stuff to Marvel Comics or DC Comics. And I was like, well, sure, what the heck? So I, I sent them, literally, this is in the days before I would have had email to do it. So I sent them, you know, photocopies in an envelope. I mailed them out, and literally within the week, I got a call to do work on Iron Man, which was mind-boggling, and I kind of had to figure out what I was doing on the fly at that moment <laughs> because to jump from nothing to working on Iron Man was a pretty big, a big deal. That was a leap. <laughs> it was quite a week. Yeah, and so I, I kind of had to learn trial by fire, and I found that you know, I really enjoyed the process. What was nice about it is as an artist, the writer really trusted me to tell the story with visuals, and then the dialogue would fill in from there, or the whatever text was needed would fill in from there. So it really gave me the opportunity to learn on, on the job. And from there, I basically just kept banging my head against the door trying to get you know into different companies and get work and, and eventually continued just doing comics. And part of it was the excitement of having your work be published and out and stories you were working on being read by other people, and that kind of drove me to keep doing it. And what about you, David? How did you get in the business? <laughs> yeah, so I kind of went at it a little bit differently. So my undergraduate degree is in neurology with a minor in education. Uh, I taught uh, special ed for a couple of years, and when I went to graduate school, uh, I had the opportunity to, to do whatever I wanted. And so I thought, well, you know, I already did neurology and education. Well, let's study comics. So I went to, and studied comics for my MFA at Goddard College. And then during my last semester there, uh, one of my advisors and I were talking about, like, well, what are you going to do, you know, with your master's thesis, which was using comics to help kids with developmental disabilities learn how to read? And I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't know. And so thinking about it a little bit more during that Thanksgiving holiday, I sat down and I drew my resume very badly, I might add, but I drew my resume as a six-panel comic strip, and I faxed it to Marvel Comics on a whim to be one of their interns. And then um, the next business day afterwards, I got a call from Marvel Comics um, asking me to intern there. And so I moved from Maryland to New York the next day and started working at Marvel Comics at the, the winter of 1998 and then uh, worked there for four years in their interactive department, uh, making digital comics and building stories in like Flash and Illustrator and Photoshop, very interactive, almost like animation. It was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it. And then, you know, I, I ended up working freelance for years afterwards. But yeah, I drew my resume and that's how I got in. <laughs> you know, one thing that I'm always struck by, readers of comics are some of the most passionate fans I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I'm sure you have found this to be true. I can't, I, this just can't be my casual observation. No, I think sports fans and Grateful Dead fans may be on par. Ah, they could equal them. <laughs> yeah. That is true. Point well taken. But boy, they're up there with the Grateful yeah. Dead fans. On one hand, when people like your work, my God, they love your work. But is there the kind of inverse of that? You know, if there's a passionate like, there can be an equally passionate dislike. Do you find that? And why do you think there is this passionate involvement? When you have people who are that passionate about the comics um, that they're reading, I mean, it's really exciting. If you have someone who's that passionate about your stuff, it's, it's amazing. But what you'll find is that a lot of the people who are the most passionate tend to be the people who are kind of involved with the characters over many, many years. So, I, I mean, it does happen to the projects we work on, but I, I think it even more happens when you have characters who are, like, long-standing, have been around for 75 years. 
And I think they become almost family to the readers to the degree that the readers get a sense of like who this character is, what they would do, and also what they wouldn't do. So the backlash can be very harsh if you take a character that is beloved, like say Batman, and you change something because you're looking to create a compelling story and compelling stories are all about change. You have to change things, but sometimes they don't like it when you change their yeah. characters, even if it's in the purpose of telling a, uh, a good story because they've invested almost like a most familial relationship with the characters to the point where that character would never do that. Why would you ever imagine that character would do that? And so you'll see that kind of backlash against certain stories um, and against writers and creators when they do things that seem uh, to go against what the fan conception of what it is that character would or wouldn't do. Because it's almost like a violation of the character. Right. I mean, well, in that way of sure. thinking. It, it's similar in, in some regards to Star Wars fans or Star Trek fans, but specifically on a that like that violation. You know, what did you do to Kirk or Spock or whatever? But you know, we read comics as solitary human beings in a solitary space. The voice that I have when I'm reading Batman in my head is very different than the voice that Steve has when he's reading Batman in his head. You know, and so we're all adding these soundtracks and creating our own narratives for how these characters live in our brains. So when other people start to take on these characters and their their voices don't match, we it might chafe us a little bit. But also keeping in mind that when we generally read these characters, we're coming into these stories and looking at these characters and generally we model our behaviors or our, our, our interests based on what we're finding in these stories. Like positive values are reinforced in comic books. You know, I was raised on Superman movies and a lot of what I think of Superman has defined who I've become as an, as an adult. So when Superman does something horrible, I, I get a little chafed. I get a little yeah. upset, <laughs> you know, because that was like the first movie my parents ever took me to see. So the ideas of truth, justice in the American way, they, they have some resonance with me as an adult. And I was raised on Super Friends and all these other things that created a, a moral compass for me, like a secular religion in a way. And so, you know, what my values mirrored the values of these, these characters that I read. And so whenever people feel that that stuff's violated, they get upset. People dress up as these characters. They dress oh, up yeah. as Batman. They have their own version of what Batman is. Um, you know, they dress up as Superman or Wonder Woman or whatever. They go to the movies. They wear the shirts. They mm. emblazon their living rooms or their bedrooms or whatever with all of this merchandise that reinforces this iconic, I don't want to say idolatry, but that's the word I'm going to use. But there's a lot of idolatry in terms of like what Wonder Woman represents to, to women or what Batman represents in terms of rugged individualists or Superman, aspirational values. And so when we see these things portrayed, it's definitely a, a problem, and it definitely creates this negative reaction. And what's interesting, there's a lot of readers devote a lot of time to creating almost their own adventures of the characters in their heads, and yeah. frequently they want to become writers or creators themselves, or they feel they're part of the creative process. They have a stake in it. And like I said, you see that in, in Star Trek fandom, and you see that in Star Wars fandom, but I think comics are sort of the barrier between fan and creator are very, very, very thin. There's a lot of intimacy, yep. especially when you go to a comic book convention. Fans have access to creators uh, in unprecedented ways, in ways I don't think you find in like music or film or television or theater. 
there's almost public, not quite public access, but, you know, creators are available for fans on Facebook and Twitter and whatever in a way that you, you don't really see in any other type of medium. Now, let me ask you this. Do you see a connection between gaming and comics? Like role-playing games? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, yes. we, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I've also done a ton of uh, artwork for games and I've designed games. And David's also designed games. And I think the, the interesting thing for me about games, especially role-playing games, is the creative aspect of sitting in a room and brainstorming a story together. Yeah, it's the um, shared narrative, I think, is really, really powerful. Yeah. When I was, you know, maybe when I was 15, it was, let's walk into a room and you fight an orc. Uh, but after, <laughs> as time went on, we started getting into much more deep stories and much more involved stories that, that ended up having influence on being able to tell uh, involved narratives in other mediums. Well, I think that there's an aspect of world building as well. And it's something that you and I do a lot, Steve, which is the idea of you're not just characters in this adventure world, like just adventuring together. You're characters who are part of a much larger tapestry. And so what we've done with our stories like High Moon and, and to a degree The Only Living Boy is that we've taken our characters and every story they're going, every chapter almost, they're going to another aspect of this world, whether it's like going to Ragged Rock, Oklahoma or London, England, or going to like the underwater palace of Myrmidonia or the flying hive city of Sectuarius. Um, you know, so we always want to make sure that the characters are exploring their world and being a part of it in, in a really immersive way. And I think that role-playing games really gave us that sense that uh, the sky's the limit. You know, like uh, in role-playing games, there's an unlimited budget for special effects. And and it's the same thing for comic books. Yeah. Is that we're if not... You can imagine it, you have it. Yeah, we're not it. beholden to, you know, what Lucasfilms can provide or any sort of budget that Warner Brothers might dictate. We have the budget of our imaginations, which is boundless. And that is a lovely place <laughs> to end this. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank I you, really Jill. appreciate it. Thank um, you very it was much, fabulous. Jill. That was David Gallagher and Steve Ellis. They are co-creators of High Moon. Now, Volume 1 of High Moon, Bullet Holes and Bite Marks, it has just been reissued. When can we expect to see Volumes 2 and 3? Oh, yeah. So, uh, uh, High Moon Volume <laughs> yeah, so High Moon volume 2 will be out uh, May of 2018. It's called Wicked Ways. And then the, the conclusion for that trilogy, High Moon Volume 3, Dead Reckoning, comes out October 2018. In time for Halloween. Gentlemen, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Joe. Thank you very much, Joe. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. And the Artworks podcast is now available on iTunes. Please subscribe. And if you like us, leave us a rating. It really does help people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>